Hey everybody, this is Chris and Jason from Silver Solutions Podcast. Join us as we chat with people from around the globe as they share their real life stories of recovery. If you like what you hear, please like and subscribe so you can easily find us and our latest episodes. And welcome back to Sober Solutions Podcast. Tonight is episode 60. And tonight we have Charlie T from Wayne, New Jersey with us. Hey, Charlie, how you doing? I'm doing really well. How are you guys? Doing well, thank you. I'm excited about your topic this evening, talking about recovery in the workplace. And this is very pertinent for me because the last couple months in our Q4 push have just been hellacious and stressful. And I'm very excited for us to get talking on this tonight. But before we get into that, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, Oh, like you said, my name is Charlie T uh, from Wayne, New Jersey. And uh, I guess I'm unfortunate enough, like many, many people to uh, really come from a long line of alcoholics and kind of got a double whammy where I have it on both sides of my family and including some of my siblings. Growing up, life was actually okay. No real like abuse or anything like that in the family. Just the one thing I would say is that we probably didn't really have very excellent role models as parents. As a teenager, kind of felt like same deal that so many teenagers have going out having fun with my buddies, playing softball multiple you know, times a week and always hitting the bar afterwards. Um, it, it, and it sort of became like uh, the bar was more fun than the softball game and one became a, you know, sort of like an excuse for the other. But then as I started getting a, a little bit older in my 20s and in my early 30s, dating, then getting married, I was still going out with the guys. I was still playing you know, softball weeknights, Saturday and Sunday mornings, the whole nine yards. And it really was almost just like a habit, not just for me, but even like some of my friends, like a real, like focal part of our life, even more so than work. Work was just a way to get money, to go out and do those very things. So my wife at the time, she just, and she drinks, but you know, she doesn't drink to any kind of excess and doesn't have a problem with it, but I think she thought it was something that I would sort of grow out of. And so did I. And then I thought when kids would come along that that would be it. And once again, it wasn't right. So after a while, I should say both she and I realized it was like a really big problem for me and I knew it, I knew it. So despite the, like the decades that I would ultimately go through, I knew it was a problem. It's funny because I remember recalling that I would say every single time that she and I got into an argument, alcohol was tied to it. We didn't have a lot of differences of opinions. Of course we did, right? But it was never anything that caused arguments, right? So what would happen to me then when we started realizing this, of course, me in terms of like appeasing her, I went to a few meetings, like a couple of times I'd say, yeah, maybe I ought to go to a meeting. Went to the meetings, it was the guy sitting in the back of the room, not contributing, just sort of like clocking in time more than anything else. Uh, certainly not even talking to anybody or participating, much less even, you know, getting involved in like step work, which later on I did. I even went as far as going to a meeting with a brother-in-law of mine who was in recovery. Um, he had had 
uh, I think about 15 years at that point. I go to the meeting, I shared, I had a bunch of people come up to me after the meeting, talking to me about helping me. And then I never went back. Right. And on and on and on in the cycle, a long period of time, once again, would go by. I really didn't do anything. Like I say, quit drinking many times, sometimes actually as long as like six months. So I actually almost don't think that my issue was like one of a physical dependency. It was what they say in the AA program about mental obsession more than anything else. Every single time it would happen, I would get all kinds of apologetic to her. Then the cycle would just sort of start itself all over again. What I would say is when I finally hit the wall, I'll say, and and hopefully uh, have quit for good, it was about two years uh, and nine months ago, very much like right around the beginning of the uh, pandemic. And I know Chris has heard some of this uh, story in the past. What the catalyst sort of was for me quitting was another one of these arguments with my wife. And, you know, each time it was her confronting me about my drinking, me denying over and over. But there was something about this one time. This is sort of like for me, when I look back, why I almost want to hit myself in the head sometimes for not noticing these things and placing, again, we'll call it an obsession, but placing such a priority on drinking over everything else. Like that was the driver in my life at the time. And, um, but what happened on this thing, I remember we were in our bedroom and it was, it was like the same drill, right? You know, she came in, she was talking to me about my drinking as well as like money spent. Cause it was kind of obvious that I was spending money to support that habit. And I'll just say that I saw a deeper sadness instead of just the anger that I always saw before. And it's funny because all the time that I was drinking, I knew it was going to come to an end in some form or fashion, right? I knew either I was going to end up divorced or end up losing my job or end up killing somebody or end up dead. All those sort of things. I, I knew it was going to end. I almost feel like I'm lucky that it ended with that kind of argument and maybe that I had that half a second where I saw what was happening to her, where I said to her, I got to really do something about this. The irony is, it goes to show you where our relationship was. I saw that look. She walked out of our bedroom. I had to text her. It was almost easier for me to do that than go try to have this conversation for me to turn around and admit that that I had this problem. So she was aware of a rehab where her best friend, who ironically, her husband's name is Charlie. Charlie had went to a rehab. Right. But Charlie went to uh, the residence, you know, part. I went to the partial hospitalization, which ultimately becomes IOP, which ultimately becomes OP, outpatient. And uh, and actually, that's, uh, yeah, well, I'll go off from there. And by the way, if you had told me that I'd be there two or three weeks short of a year. So this was going on around the time, again, like we said earlier, that COVID kicked in. Right. So here it was, it was the end of February of 2020. I should say it at this point, I'm a sales director for a pretty large company that's got, you know, global presence, but I'm a sales director for the U S right. So 50 States, a lot of travel, et cetera, et cetera. At the time I was a regional manager. So I had the Northeast, 
So I had 13 states, but again, multiple uh, salespeople uh, working for me. Well, what happened was I go into the rehab and because the country went into lockdown, a lot of the travel for us really shut down. And a lot of people would say at the time, oh, this gives me more opportunity to drink. This is like stories that I heard when I was in the rehab. And for me, it was kind of the opposite because here I am at home. My wife is home. I really consider myself very fortunate because for me, it was like the availability and the opportunities kind of shrank around the time that it was just starting to get my feet under me in terms of sobriety. You know, even, even if it was just a couple of weeks, so that was a good thing. Uh, but I did have one trip planned. I had to go drive out to Pittsburgh. When I went out there again, my therapist was like prepping me, what are you going to do? You need, you know, like you could just say, Hey, I have to make a phone call and excuse yourself from dinner. You could say, I'm feeling a little under the weather. You could say I'm on antibiotics. So I can't drink tonight, right? You know, probably all these things that we read about if we're involved in any kind of program. So I chose the antibiotics, right? So I'll take that off the menu. And I used it that night and it's a perfectly good excuse, but obviously it's not one of those things you can use forever. I can't be on antibiotics forever. So I don't know about you guys, but that's sort of an excuse that wears thin. So I did that, came back, everything was fine. And then because of what the situation was in the world and less travel and people working from home, my sales role and going out and seeing customers who didn't want people in their offices sort of confined me to a uh, work at home, Teams calls, you know, Teams called mania, by the way, just working my way through that. So I didn't have to worry about all these like situations, but again, I knew that day would come where the rules would relax and we'd be back to uh, the norm. Funny thing happened along the way. So like I said, I was a regional manager and then uh, I got promoted about four months later. Now, the fact that I was sober for four months, you know, whether that's a coincidence or not, or my performance improved, whatever it was, I don't know. But I do thank God that that occurred when I was sober because I would have self-destructed based on all the added pressures, you know, some of the things that we just mentioned briefly uh, as we started here, or maybe just before we started. What I had done prior to that was I had made a decision that everybody that was in my personal life, I was going to inform what my situation was, that I was in a rehab, I had to go do this, my drinking, it got out of hand. And a lot of people, you know, of course, the people that you know are really going to support you, right? You know, your friends will be your friends, et cetera. And your family, you know, certainly be supportive. Uh, I think in probably almost every case, the professional side of the business, I was so worried about what might people think, that whole stigma thing that happens, right? How would that affect my standing in the company for both presently as well as future, you know, trust, you know, all, all that kind of stuff that, because, uh, hey, once upon a time, I had an opinion of what an alcoholic looked like and acted like and everything else. I don't know if there's a singular stereotype, but there's certainly a stigma that exists. So again, I didn't want to inform anybody on my professional side. And again, had a bunch of conversations with our therapist about this. 
I didn't want anybody really to know in the beginning. And so that took me back to, okay, you know, how am I going to deal with this now? Like, what could I say? You know, what was my reason for quitting? If I, you know, if I was really going to do this, would that lead to like a million questions? Um, or would they figure out that, hey, maybe Charlie has a problem, right? So I did come up with some excuses and like different ideas on things to say to sort, because what I wanted to do was sort of soft play it. Right. You know, I didn't want to say, hey, I got a problem. I had to go to a rehab. You know, that certainly wasn't going to go down that path. So the way I tried to do this is, you know, I came up with a couple of things. Like some people almost use like humor, like jokes. Hey, when I drink, you know, I break out in handcuffs or the world's a safer place when I don't drink. All these all these sort of things. But I did start with a few people saying that, hey, look, we don't really drink much at home. And so I haven't been drinking a lot. And although I haven't had a drink in three, four, five, six months, whatever it is, and I feel better. By the way, 100% true. And that's that's what I told a lot of people, you know, in the beginning. And the big fear for me was, okay, is this going to lead to, uh, you know, the Spanish Inquisition about this thing? Am I going to get a million questions? And is it going to really get very invasive for me? But then... I turned around and like some of the guys that I was like closest with and hey, every time I went to Boston, I'd hook up with this guy or every time I went to Philadelphia, whatever it was, you know, I just said to a few of them that I might have been overdoing it. Yeah, you know, I feel better, blah, blah, blah. But I might have like slipped in there. I might have been overdoing it. Now, some of those people may have been like, yeah, you know, yeah, you're right. Nobody really approached me like that, though. And when I offered that one singular thing, and I'm just saying that this is the one that like seemed to be the most effective for me. When I offered that one singular thing, nobody came back to me with like deep dive questions on it. You know, I could just say, hey, I feel better. I feel healthier. Hey, by the way, the new job that I have, I can't afford to wake up any day feeling less than. Like I didn't have to go down these long paths by saying that. And that was a huge, huge relief. I can think of one person in particular who almost looked at it like a curiosity. And he almost said a ridiculous thing to me where he said, uh, hey, how did you quit when the pandemic made alcoholics out of a lot of people? As if the pandemic made people alcoholics, right? You know, so that was the thing. So I think really that's about it, right? That's kind of what we wanted to talk about in general. I guess my main point would be is that the fear is stronger than what the reality is, at least in my experience, right? When I tell you I fretted about that and I worried about that, it was first and foremost self-manufactured stress, as it turns out. And then here's the other thing. I haven't anybody, once I've said that, really try to push a drink on me. So I might sit down at a table and somebody will say, hey, what do you want to drink? You know, blah, blah, blah. I'll get my uh, seltzer with lemon or, you know, a Diet Coke or an iced tea or whatever it may be. But again, having offered why I'm not drinking, I haven't had that experience. For the viewers, I met Charlie kind of early in my IOP um, duration and at the end of Charlie's duration. And I specifically remember the first day I came in and I was ranting and raving about pretty much the same things. Charlie and a couple other people, uh, Alan, who we've had on the show, and a few others, 
I was raving about how I can't work anymore and my wife and it I just remember you and a couple other people you know you're like it'll be okay we were you eight months ago or nine months ago or whatever it was so I got a lot of good knowledge that you guys soaked up from that previous nine months before I got there I think you really helped me with my wife and with work I was I was one of those people because this is my second or third time out of rehab and I was one of those people that would make up excuses and say I cannot do my job without drinking which is complete and utter bullshit it's just complete and utter bullshit you know I would say oh well we go to these client dinners I have to drink I found out recently people just don't care I think that that's the underlying thing is people care about themselves more than others yeah, I agree with you, Chris. I think that if if you're sitting down with, and of course we're talking about the workplace. If we're talking, if you're sitting down and you're meeting with people or eating with people that don't know you, to pass on a drink, it's the easiest thing in the world. It really is. Most people won't go. Well, you know, you know, like even like that and I, but we think they're all like wondering about us, right? But yeah, it's a different story when you're with people that have seen you in action and you overcome that. So speaking of that, one thing that I did find interesting and I learned a lot from was your progression up to the Pittsburgh trip. And our therapist helped you develop a plan. So for our viewers, why don't you walk us through kind of what a typical plan for a night, and that would be really, I think, helpful for some people out there is what is a plan you can make for a situation that you know you're going to be around alcohol? Because that's kind of what that four-week buildup was. It comes down to getting away, right? You know, they always say people, places, things. It's about getting away. So, you know, you sit down to a dinner. If the pressure starts to ramp up, you get away. If you start to feel a little squirrely, you get away, right? I think those are so, sort of the principal things is to, you know, find, find excuses that pull you away from whatever that situation is. Unless you're in a position where you do want to just say, hey, you know what, I, it depends on your audience, right? You know, but if you actually wanted to say, hey, you know, I, I just quit a little while ago and I feel uncomfortable. I don't know many people that would do that. I really don't. I, I would admire anybody who could. But again, I would worry for myself about stigma. The one thing about the business that I'm in, on one hand, I can say it's very, uh, it's a large, you know, it's tied to construction, you know, uh, so it's a very large business, but it's also very sort of incestuous where people, it's always the same people moving around, you know, company to company and, and whatnot. So it's always the same cast of characters and uh, there's always sort of like a rumor mill that's associated, too much drama, but, um, I don't want to be part of that. I think you made so many good points in there, Charlie. I think that the plan that someone has is personal to them. Just like you said, have someone call you or you call someone before you go into an event and call someone after an event. Make up an excuse. And I love that you said that because it's personal. And it's something that is easy and something that a lot of people can do. Also, and this ties to other people seeing you not drinking and saying that you're not drinking at a, at a work event. I think that it's 
all about our perception of ourselves. No one else makes a big deal of it if we are not drinking at an event, but we do because that's the obsession of it, right? And so if I say, hey, you know, I just got a call, I got to run, or hey, you know, I have to go let the dog out or whatever it is, people aren't going to worry about that. They're going to be like, okay, that sounds normal to me, right? And just keep it moving. But we get so tied up in our heads and worried about what other people are thinking that we forget that we're doing this for ourselves. And I think that's huge. When Chris talks about having a plan, I think having a plan takes more pressure off of you, right? Because if you're, you know, going to be plunged in this, into a situation like that, you're already going to feel a certain amount of stress, right? How am I going to deal with this? How am I going to, what are they going to say? What are they going to think, et cetera, et cetera. But when you have a plan, you're not fumbling for an answer. You're not, you know, like you already have it, right? And so you end up ultimately just taking more pressure off yourself, right? More, more stress off yourself. So I think it's a very wise thing. And I think it's a healthy thing. I actually was thinking about it. I'm in the construction world as well. And when I re-entered my new job, uh, which I got just out of rehab, um, I kind of ripped the bandaid off and just said, listen, I'm sober now. And since that point, no one's offered me a drink and I still go to these golf events, dinners, all this stuff. And I think that was the best decision for me at the time. It was a new company and it is very incestuous. It's a rotating, you know, so, and it's funny that you say that because I remember I got a call from like an old boss's, it got back to me within like two weeks that I said that. But it was actually someone saying how happy they are. And that's another thing. Once you say you're sober, everyone knows somebody that's sober. And that's the first thing that everyone goes to. Oh, my uh, wife's sister's brother's dog's owner is sober. It is kind of funny. And it's like, this is like looking at it now, looking backwards. But, you know, if a certain percentage of our population has this disease, Right. And oh, by the way, that was another thing is that when, again, in IOP and OP, et cetera, when we were calling this a disease, I remember having this conversation with my sponsor. I felt like that was a cop out for my behavior. Like I was going to go home and say to my wife, guess what? I've had a disease. That's what it is. It's fine. It's fine. I don't, you know, I'm working on my disease, you know, but I don't, just to me, it was one of those things. I've definitely used that one to my wife and it's definitely not, it doesn't get you out of jail. Oh no, it doesn't. (laughs) I didn't even want to use it. Like I said, I felt like it was lame, although I know it's not right. And as you know, as I got a little more sobriety under my belt and, um, you know, just, and you hear more and more people talk in meetings and, and surrounding yourself with sober people, you really come to realize it's not just an excuse and it's certainly not lame. Right. It's just that's where my mind was. Right. Like I can cure all my problems. I can quit drinking just like I had 25 times before. And this time it's going to be permanent because, you know, X, Y, Z. And it just never was. So, Charlie, I have a question for you around managing stress. So I look back in my professional career and I remember times where I was literally doing 
lines of crystal meth, and taking shots of fireball in my office before meetings because I thought that I'd be on the ball for it. And I'd be staying up all night working on proposals, working on presentations, thinking that I was killing it. The bad part is that I was actually getting praise for it. That was how I was handling the stress of my job. I felt like a minnow in the ocean. And I'm wondering how you now, as a sober man, deal with the stress without going down to that bar in the hotel or picking up a free scotch on the plane or whatever it is. Yeah, so um, as maybe you can imagine in my role, you know, fair amount of presenting goes on. An interesting thing happened to me in terms of uh, the stress, right? So I do a fair amount of presenting in a sales role with our company. And what started happening to me, and I felt like it came out of nowhere, was let's say you were at a multi-day conference, you know, you go out, you get slammed the night before, you get a big presentation the next day. Sort of similar to like what you're describing, right? Well, I would get up and I would start to experience like nerves like I never had before. And sometimes it was like that physical kind of reaction from being hungover. Sometimes I almost felt like, uh, I, I almost felt like a fraud, if, if you can understand that, to like, like the person that is standing in front of me. And that started playing on me to the point where I started all of a sudden getting nerfed up, like in a big way around these presentations. Once I had quit drinking, and I kid you not, once I had quit drinking, and again, I had sort of the benefit of being home for a little while, but I got back out, you know, on the road and sort of got back into that mode. My stress was gone because I wasn't feeling like crap getting up in front of an audience, number one. Um, and, and by the way, that hangover effect was just making me a ball of nerves all the time. So actually quitting reduced my stress. Not that I easily deal with stress today, but I'm able to sort of like manage it even more like internally. And yeah, I do those things. I get up and I go for a walk or I take a little break or I, uh, actually more often than not, you know, if it's just sort of like a business issue, I'll plow through it. One of the things is, and I never read the book, but my, uh, my sponsor, uh, talks about a book that I think it's called eat the frog. So I think what the book boils down to is imagine you have a plate of fruit and you've got to eat everything on the plate, but there's a frog on that plate. What do you do? You eat the frog because you're going to be staring at that frog, thinking about that frog all the while, while you're eating all the other stuff. So eat the frog and get it over with. And that's sort of like the way I approach like my day when I get up and I've got 25 things to do, but one thing is like nagging and bothering me and all that. I eat the frog. I like that. I've never heard that. I as well had that um, imposter syndrome that you were talking about. Like you don't deserve to be there. And you've talked very extensively about planning and sobriety in the workforce. I think all three of us have a different experience. You started to talk about your sponsor and step work. How has sobriety as a whole affected your career since you got promoted? Or do you attribute 
kind of recovery for your promotion? I know you kind of said you don't know if it was coincidence, but how has it helped you in the recent uh, period of time? I truly don't know if one led to the other. I'd like to think not, you know, because again, that was like a four month period from, you know, A to Z, you know, when, when I did get promoted, but I've been with this company for, again, you know, for decades, right? So, you know, I like to think I had a body of work that sort of lit, you know, then once the opportunity occurred, then, then all that. I don't even suspect. I think if I was still drinking, like I said, I would have self-destructed. Just under the pressure, I would have just sort of like, if I had a bottle to comfort me through a lot of those things that were going on. Oh, by the way, let's remember we were in a pandemic and there was supply chain, this and all that. So it was like the worst possible time. I know I would have self-destructed, which by the way, you know, I'm not just talking about from, you know, uh, a job perspective, uh, as bad as things were with my family and very much in particular with my wife, probably a good chance we'd be done, especially after that, that one particular event that, that I was mentioning. So Charlie, thank you so much for sharing your experience in what I think a lot of our viewers deal with on a daily basis, trying to insert our recovery into our careers and trying to have that recovery professional life balance and blend. I really identified with a lot that you said tonight. I could see myself in so many different situations that you were referring to. One last question that I have for you is we like to give, you know, our experience, strength and hope to the people who listen to our show. And I want to know if you had to give one piece of advice to a newcomer or to someone who might need it, who has years of recovery in, in the bank, what would that one piece of advice be? I think for me, it was, if you have truly surrendered, like truly surrendering, truly giving up, it would be to take any and all suggestions that are offered to you. Well, first of all, my suggestion would be to work a program, right? Not just try to white knuckle it. If you're truly surrendering, get into a 12-step program and just follow the instructions. You have an instruction book, follow them, give it up, fight your own self-will, just admit that's what you need to do. Because that's, at least to date, that has been what's worked for me. That is awesome. That's excellent advice and something that changed my entire program. It wasn't until I surrendered that I started to get all of the things in life that were coming to me through my recovery program. Yeah, yeah, it happens. Get a good sponsor and let the sponsor guide you. Awesome. Well, Charlie, thank you so much for coming on tonight. We really appreciate it. It was nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Nice meeting you and uh, best of luck to you guys going forward. And as always, each and every one of our episodes is dedicated to the still sick and suffering alcoholic and addict, especially the individual who's going to pick up for the first time tonight. Have a great night, guys. We appreciate your liking and subscribing to our podcast. If you liked what you heard today and would like to support our podcast, Feel free to Venmo a dollar to our virtual basket at Sober Solutions Podcast. We want to hear from you too. If you have a comment, question, topic, or would like to come on the show, find us on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at Sober Solutions Podcast. Or you can shoot us an email to Sober Solutions Podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 
And if you like what you've heard, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show.